well-trained negotiator is not just ready for surprises, but waiting and prepared for those surprises because they know that those surprises contain the essence of the encounter and the real, the real juicy stuff. I'm Michael Max, and this is Geological. Try this in your clinical work. Shift your stance from, I hope this works, to, I wonder how this works. Shift from the stance of doubt and an ego-propping hope that it's okay to a sense of inquiry and curiosity. From a comment about you and your skill to an engagement with what is and a chance to see if your ideas actually match reality. How often have you planted your last needle, dimmed the lights, and walked out of the room and thought, oh man, I hope this works. You know that feeling I'm talking about, that sense of doubt that both tugs on compassion for your patients and at the same time feeds a sense of wanting to feel like a capable and helpful practitioner. I hope this works. That uncomfortable thought that goes through my mind far more often than I imagined it would after being at this endeavor as long as I have. At the beginning of my practice, I thought by now I wouldn't have these doubts. Perhaps the doubts are part of the landscape of practicing medicine. In fact, I think they are. Like all of nature, humans are complex interactive systems. Whatever treatment we give is always based on limited knowledge. There is what can be seen and there are helpful and mostly reliable signs and symptoms that can guide us. But still, there's the question, will this work? Which really, when you think about it, it's a great question. And if we can stay the uncertainty and discomfort of investigating into how will this work, then we can get somewhere. If we can shift from, I hope this works, to I wonder how this will work, then we can shift away from requiring our patients to get good results so as to prop up our sense of self-worth and to engaging the unfolding process of understanding who our patient actually is. There's a lot of pressure to get it right, and I am not suggesting that we work in a sloppy way. But there's a lot of getting it wrong on the way to getting it right. We should do the best work we are capable of doing. But doing it to prop up our sense of self-worth is neither helpful for us, nor is it useful to our patients. Finding a way to engage that part of you that is curious and exploratory, like perhaps what it was like when you first set off on the path of thinking that learning acupuncture might be a good idea. Can, can you remember that? Can you recall what caught your attention that led to thinking, hmm, maybe there's something here worth following? Sticking with the process of discovery that comes from the mindset of, I wonder how this will work, it leaves us open to appreciating the deteriorations in our patient's condition as well as the improvements. Much as a true scientist is as happy to disprove as prove a hypothesis, the joy of the work is in the discovery and, more importantly, updating our understanding. I saw a sign at my niece's math classroom when there for a parent-teacher visit. It said, when you're getting it right, you're practicing. When you're getting it wrong, you're learning. Much of the time, we are practicing medicine. But the amount of time we're learning, it's not small. 
I wonder how this will work. It's not just a helpful question. It's a stance that keeps us open to new information. And there's always new information if we keep ourselves open to it. Margot Rossi and Nick Paul are with us again today. You can hear Margot previously on episode 37, and Nick was on episode 49. And both were here a year ago in episode number 144, where we discussed the Tao of communication. Today, we are again looking into the intricacies of language with this conversation on negotiation as we explore the methods and perspectives as detailed in the book, Never Split the Difference by FBI hostage negotiator Chris Voss. How does negotiation fit into the therapeutic process? Well, you're about to find out. These conversations come to you through the generous support of our sponsors and members. All the sponsors here provide helpful products or services that you'll find beneficial in your clinical work. Worried that an EMR is too complex for you? Jane has friendly and knowledgeable support. Mayway Herbs? is celebrating the 55th year of their family business. You're invited to make use of their vast library of resources. Are you concerned about the health of Mother Earth? AccuFast Needles is doing something about that. You can too. And later in the show, Ancestral Sturman offers up a sinew treatment, and the folks at Blue Poppy have something special to share as well. Do be sure to visit the sponsors page on the Geological website to take advantage of all the special offers our terrific sponsors have for listeners of the podcast. I don't know about you, but sometimes I take a step back and marvel at my acupuncture needles. I mean, they're the world's simplest medical tool, a sharpened wire and a handle. That's it. And with this simple tool, hundreds of health conditions can be resolved. I love it. What I didn't love was the amount of packaging waste I generated at the end of the day. But that has now changed too. Ever since I switched to AccuFast Earth-Friendly Needles, I reduced my packaging waste by 90%. Not only are they a great needle, but the folks at AccuFast plant a tree for every two boxes of needles I use in the clinic. By switching to AccuFast Needles, you'll be helping patients, planting trees, and joining a community of practitioners changing the world. Like our simple needle, being a part of the solution, it's simple too. Visit AccuFastNeedles.com slash Geological to learn how. Hi folks, I'm Yvonne Lau, president of Mayway Herbs. Our family business turns 55 this year, and we wouldn't have gotten this far without the love and support of our community. We're truly grateful and promise you that we'll continue to work hard to support you and your practice. Please visit Mayway.com to find the perfect Pumsar brand formula or formulate your own in our dispensary. Our site also has lots of articles, videos, and herbal recipes for you to explore. And tune into our podcast, Chinese Medicine Matters, for insightful discussions on all things TCM. Learn about treatment strategies and powerful herbal remedies. As we welcome the month of May, our focus is on women's health. Our newsletter articles and podcast episodes this month will highlight different aspects and unique challenges women face. So subscribe or tune in. And if you're a practitioner, get a discount on our women's health formulas this month. Just visit Mayway.com. This season and every season, trust Mayway Herbs for your health and wellness needs. And thank you for supporting Real Chinese Medicine. I love how technology can help to automate my office. And I want to share with you my favorite tool for doing so. 
Jane. Jane is a clinic management software in EMR with a human touch. Whether you're switching your software or going paperless for the first time, the Jane team knows that the onboarding process can feel a little overwhelming. That's why with Jane, you don't just get software, you get a whole team. Included in every Jane subscription is their award-winning customer support available by phone, email, and chat whenever you need it, even Saturdays. You can also book a free account setup consultation to review your account and ensure you feel confident about going live. If you're interested in making the switch to Jane, head to jane.app/switch to book a one-on-one demo with a member of their support team. And be sure to mention the code Geological at the time of sign up for a one-month grace period on your new Jane account. Let's get into this conversation with Nick and Margot on negotiation, empathy, and some surprisingly gentle, connective, and effective methods that the FBI uses that can also be helpful to you in your clinical work. I know it sounds strange, but it's true. Let's find out more now with Nick and Margot. Nick Pohl and Margot Rossi, welcome back to Geological. Thank you, Michael. Hi, Michael. Always so much fun to talk to you too. You know, over the years, I've talked with each of you individually. I've spoken with you together. It seems like at least once a year, we kind of have to circle around and, and have a little chit chat. One of the things that it seems we have talked about, or at least I've mentioned in our conversations, Uh, Because we're often talking about communication and how people get along or don't get along or how we can help our patients. So often there's like an element of negotiation in things, right? I mean, negotiation in the best possible way, like, you know, like what's for dinner type negotiation. Of course, there's also the more difficult negotiations. And and, uh, as we were talking before getting on and rolling tape today, both of you said to me, you know, you mentioned a book to me. We had our conversation called Never Split the Difference. And both of you have gone and read that and evidently had conversations among yourselves. And so here we're going to talk about negotiation today, which is kind of interesting because usually I think most of us think about negotiation as like, oh my God, that thing I got to do, like taking out the garbage, not really pleasant, but needs to be done. And yet when we're working with our patients, we're negotiating on their behalf all the time with them. I mean, how often are we sitting with people and they're like totally negotiating against themselves in terms of their health and well-being. So welcome to this conversation about negotiation. And why don't we start with you, Margot, on what got you guys, other than my nudge, go read this book. What got you going with this? Thank you, Michael. Yeah. So what got us going was we were paying attention and noticed that you mentioned this book three times, once with Nick, once with me, and once with the three of us together, at least. And so um, I don't remember, Nick, if we decided to take it on together and see why it was that Michael was mentioning this book whenever we were talking about communicating with Chi or conversing, building rapport, reflective listening in the clinic. So Michael, we paid attention. We honor and revere you enough. <laughs> we listened reflectively. <laughs> so 
I mean, I'm keen on that book. I'm curious to know, especially with the kind of work, Nick, that you do with clean language and and Margot with communicating with Chi and thinking about how our Chinese medicine fits into all this. What is it about this book that you have found helpful in your work? Yeah, so for me, I think when Nick and I started reading, we read it together. So we've been checking in every week and just sort of sharing our impressions of it. And one thing that Nick and I both have noticed is that what the author Chris Voss is talking about in negotiation, it's, it really is about listening, the language that we use, creating rapport with the people that we're interfacing with, and also trusting that they know for themselves what they want. He's dealing with hostage takers. We're dealing with patients and clients, but it's really the same thing. The, the, the patient, the client, the person that he's dealing with has a goal in mind and isn't sure how to get it. There's a demand being made and then a negotiation has to take place. And this is true for our patients. I think what's so evident to me in my initial intake with patients, which I still take a long time. I take an hour and a half with people just to get a feel for them when I first meet them. And it's so clear to me that with everything that they're dealing with, whatever health issue they're dealing with, They're having to negotiate and accommodate it in their life with their family and their friends and their coworkers and themselves. And they have to look at their lifestyle. I mean, if they want to, there's a lot of negotiation happening for the patient within themselves with the issue that they're dealing with. And Nick observed something else too. I would say the the more you do this kind of work, whatever kind of therapeutic work, acupuncture, for me, it's a mixture of hands-on work and clean language. Uh, And the more comfortable you get with yourself as you do it, the more you realize that ultimately you're working with trauma. It's just these layers of trauma, many layers of trauma, not just individual incidents, not just attachment traumas, but generational traumas and these many layers that th- it's just those layers of trauma that lie between our everyday manufactured self and our authentic self that we want to present to the world. And what got me interested when you meant, kept mentioning this book, Michael, was that you know Chris Voss is, is an FBI negotiator. He's working with people in absolutely rough and ready, raw emotional situations where Trauma is right there. Everyone's kind of quivering with it. People are with their hostage in a bank or in an apartment in Harlem, whatever. They, they, if they come out of that door, they might be shot down by the New York Police Department. They have no idea what's going to happen to them if they do what this negotiator says and come out of the door with their hands up. So that, you know, that trigger edge of, of trauma, just learning to be with it, learning to be comfortable with it, learning to come back to one's own safe sense of embodied presence and to almost sounds a little strange but to welcome it which uh i guess i do now it's like until the trauma comes into the room you know nothing's really started and this is another point that chris voss makes he says it so well it's this is a quote from him it's vitally important to get to know get to the clients know or get to the hostage takers know because it's the no that starts the negotiation. And he 
emphasizes how important it is in any negotiation to bring the objections, to bring the negatives into the open as early as you can. Whereas we, I think, in the helping professions, tend to want to kind of oh, keep the nose out and just get on with this nice, happy healing process. <laughs> so that's that's uh, certainly where I'm coming from in in relating to this stuff. Yes, the well, there's a very famous book on negotiation called Getting to Yes. And and often, especially sleazy salespeople, when they're trying to sell you something, they will try to get you to say yes, yes, yes. They get you to say yes to something that doesn't really matter. And they get you to say yes to something else. And, eh, you know, it, not that big a deal. The idea is that if you say yes long enough, you'll say yes to whatever it is they're trying to sell you. And most of us know that. And most of us resist the hell out of that because it's super manipulative. And one of my big takeaways from Chris's work was you want to get to the no as quickly as possible because no lets people feel like they are in charge. They're in, they've got the power. When you can say no and you can set a boundary, okay, now I'm safe. Someone's not trying to talk me into something. Of course, he's got some very clever ways of using no to move things forward. And, and Nick, you just said something that, that just went through me like a lightning bolt. Because I have heard both in his, his audio book and in reading the book, Chris talk about the negotiation begins when you get a no. I think I just heard you say that when the trauma shows up in the room, that's when the treatment can begin, that there is something that's there. And until it's present in some way, we don't really have leverage in being able to help our patients. Yes. And th again, he has, a, he has this wonderful metaphor of, Actually, he talks about Oprah Winfrey, someone who can get a person who she's never met before in front of millions of people to share deep, dark secrets they have held hostage in their own minds for a lifetime. There's a metaphor for you. I tend to think of it as the other way around. It Actually, it's, it's this part of the person that's causing the symptoms, say, overwhelming anxiety attacks or something like that. This part that's causing those overwhelming anxiety attacks is holding the, the person hostage. And how do we negotiate with that part? And that's that's where I see myself as a kind of mediator. Uh, sometimes, as you say, you, you, you sense this trauma coming into the room, into the field, um, before the person does. And acknowledging that, I do it literally in, in words. I say, I'm talking now to that part of you that's causing these symptoms. And I just like it to know that whatever it does, it's perfectly okay for it to be here. And often what you find is it doesn't want to communicate. It's just so fed up with what's been happening for so long. It feels it's been ignored for so long or mistreated for so long that it just, it sees no reason why it should communicate. It's just gonna carry on with its uh, behavior because that seems to be the safest thing to do. Usually, of course, these parts are parts that have, uh, you know, through the process of trauma, decided that they have to keep this person hyper-aroused, alert, in case anything like that should happen again. How do you begin that process of negotiation, whether it's through the needles or whether it's through some kind of presence and making sure that you are not wobbling too much in your own embodied presence as you stay with it? There's, these are the kind of things that me and Margot are very interested in. The listening, really important in this process as negotiators. Nick is pointing out that 
we as practitioners with our patients are negotiators too. And we're helping our patients be their own negotiator with themselves with these parts that Nick brought up about the 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 parts of us that are traumatized that are trying to get our attention. And sometimes it feels like they're taking us hostage. They're taking our lives hostage. So there are specific skills that we can we can cultivate within ourselves with our work where we are bridging this ability to be present and embodied within ourselves and to invite language into the 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 picture so that through language we can get to know a little bit more about these parts in a way that feels safe and in a timing that also feels safe um, so that the wisdom that's already inside of us can emerge just very naturally it unfolds and there's nothing there's nothing we need to actually do or fix or change it's just a kind of an opening of awareness so it sounds like there are some key components mm-hmm. One is our embodied presence and rapport. Yeah. There's another element of timing. I, I often hear friends that, that work with kind of an osteopathic bend in the medicine. They use the word tempo, which, which I, I find a lovely uh, thing to think about in terms of how I interact with my patients. There's timing, but like tempo is something else. You get a sense of the dance mm-hmm. that's involved. And the other thing that I just heard both of you say is that there are these parts and they're holding another part hostage and they, and they seem quite hostile and they seem problematic. Often they think they are being protective and helpful and deeply, deeply unappreciated. Yeah. Nick and I noticed this um, in a conversation a few weeks ago where we're both reading this book called The Master and His Emissary about the divided brain and how it has influenced culture and our evolution as human beings. But that's that's another conversation for another time. But it brings up that idea of the, um, the pericardium as the eunuch to the heart and how the pericardium can usurp that mastery that the emperor of the heart holds because the eunuch thinks it has a better idea of how things should proceed or it's trying to protect the heart, which of course is the pericardium's job. So yeah, it can, it can feel like we're taking ourselves hostage. And sometimes it's, it's our body's way of trying to help ourselves. It just feels distorted. Well, I know that um, Nick, in the past, we've talked a bit about the polyvagal theory and how there is this one aspect of us that can get, go into shutdown. And I'm wondering here about those parts that we're talking about. Let's, let's call them the hostage taker right now. If that's reflected in, say, the activation of the dorsal aspect of the uh, vagus nerve. Well, you- I guess you're certainly in a uh, fight or flight mode uh, when you're a hostage taker uh, and you don't know how many police are outside waiting to shoot you. <laughs> and there's, there are some fantastic stories in his book about the dynamics between hostages and hostage takers, you know, who are in this trauma field 
uh, where somebody may die very soon. Uh, and just trying to imagine yourself into that space is, I, I think it's great training for staying calm and collected when you're with a client, with a patient, and they are reaching these parts of themselves which literally can overwhelm them in a second. And this is one of the things that I find, you know, people, people that I've, I've been working with, that the sense that it's just going to overwhelm me and there's nothing I can do. It's just, it just comes immediately. And how can we begin to negotiate with that? How can we begin, on the one hand, of course, to use the basic skills that we know around things like the polyvagal theory to give people some step-by-step -step ways to manage things, um, but which will only ever be a way of coping. And on the other hand, how do we actually get to the deeper stuff? What is it that this hostage taker inside has um, has in mind? What do they need? And that, again, coming back to Chris Voss, you know, what he says, I think, early on is uh, that what they were looking for uh, not that that getting to yes strategy that you mentioned earlier, which was devised by academics, with the absurd notion that, or we're all uh, rational beings here communicating together wisely. With, you know, what did it say? The goal is a wise outcome reached efficiently and amicably, is the basic model in getting to yes. And Christos has this wonderful story about how he was invited to Harvard to to test his approach to negotiation, which was developed in the field, as he said not in the, in the realms of academe, and how he actually outwitted them when they tried to, um, to um, negotiate him down. So he says what they were looking for in the FBI, having used this Harvard strategy and finding it wasn't actually working with uh, people who had guns in their hands and guns at their necks, funnily enough. We were looking for some simple psychological tactics and strategies, he says, that worked in the field. He's talking about the field in the... Um, FBI sense. We're talking about the field in the psychotherapeutic sense, I think. This field of jangled emotions that's happening between us and the patient. Worked in the field to calm people down, establish rapport, gain trust, elicit their needs, and persuade the other guy of our empathy. And he says, and we were looking for something that would work and be simple to learn because after all, these guys are cops and FBI agents. They're not academics and they're not psychotherapists. And similarly, and you know, my work is training mind-body workers to, to appreciate how the chi flows through the language that people use and how they give themselves away so readily and beautifully with the words they say. But we're not training ourselves to be psychotherapists and we're not trying to be academics. We're looking for something that works in the field to calm people down, establish rapport, gain trust, elicit needs, and persuade this other person of our empathy. You just said that patients give themselves away with their language. They beautifully give themselves away with their language. I just, I heard that it just, it just lands with this sense of, I think that's right. I think about certain encounters that I've had in clinic, and I wouldn't say that I approach it in the same methodical, conscious way that you might because of the training that you've got and the ways that you think. But I do know those moments when people say something and I, I can hear the truth of it, or I can hear I can hear something in there that's not being said and yet it has been communicated. 
not being said, and yet it has been communicated. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That reminds me of two beautiful lines from Philip Larkin's poem, The Trees. It starts out, it's about trees in spring, late spring. The trees are coming into leaf, like something almost being said. That something almost being said is is what we're, we're uh, attuning ourselves to, I think. And it comes through the, the key, as we call it in Shiatsu, or the chi, and through the spatial expressions, through gestures, you know, well before it comes into the words. But the words themselves will also be carrying it, yeah. Yeah, it makes me think of, um, and Michael, you know this because you've, you've studied clean language too, that one of the beauties of language and the art of negotiation is, at least in the clinic, if we're talking about clean language, is supporting the patient or the client to come up with a metaphor for their experience. And that metaphor is speaking the truth in a way that's subtle. So I, I have an example. Can I, can I give you an example? Something? Yeah, I, I would love to hear an example. <laughs> because uh, this case so beautifully, I think, outlines this art of negotiation and how we can support our patients in negotiating with themselves and to do it in a way where we're not inserting our own agenda. We're not inserting our own wisdom or knowledge or medical theory. We're just inviting them to discover for themselves what's already inside, what they already know. It hasn't yet emerged. But the metaphor can help them see it, as you're saying. So this is a case of someone who works in human resources in a situation that's residential. So she's working with people who live together during COVID. Um, And it's a fairly isolated situation. So she's in HR. She's got this pressure of navigating the pandemic. At the same time, several states away, one of her parents is dying. And so she is looking at that huge change in her life. And she's come for assistance in having crippling anxiety. She's having a lot of anxiety. And through this process of clean language, I'm inviting her to come up with a metaphor for that anxiety. Now, I could put that aside and just go, okay, we're going to work with the eight extraordinary channels or the low vessels or the primary channels, and we're going to give you these herbs, and maybe you could use these essential oils, and you could try this lifestyle practice (laughs) to deal with the anxiety. But instead, she had requested this kind of session where she was exploring, and Her metaphor for the anxiety was, it's like a column of transparent gray mist with a high-pitched sound that's driving me crazy. And the mist is slightly acidic and corroding. And she says it's constrictive and it's hampering my life. Uh, And I'd just like to pop in there and say, People are always amazed. As the therapist, you're amazed, but people are amazed themselves with the clarity and detail um, 
almost like some animated movies suddenly appearing in their head what, what these metaphors uh, actually convey. That's, yeah, that's amazing. Um, and then she goes on and says, it needs to go away, you know, so that her life isn't hampered anymore. And she hears herself say, it needs to go away. And the next thing she does is say, does it need to go away? Oh, wow. <laughs> and realizes it wants to stay as long as possible because a massive change is coming in her life, a massive reorganization, like a void or an abyss, and she doesn't know how to deal with it. Um, so she realizes the anxiety is helping her kind of stay away from the edge of that abyss. And discovers again through more through more clean questions that really what she needs is trust and faith to stand on the edge of that abyss. And that's what she's looking for. How can she build her trust and faith? Um, and then I asked her, what will happen when you have the faith and trust? And she says, the quality of the void changes to something that is less existentially defined and more like a thing to be explored you can build those skills that'll help her so thank you i just wanted to share that because it seemed to fit in with several things that we've covered already hello everyone and cecil sturman here a working knowledge of the eight extraordinary channels from the unbroken oral tradition of acupuncture is valuable beyond words the power of these channels is tremendous if the practitioner has well-integrated diagnostic, theoretical, and practical skill. You'll be familiar with Dumai, the governor channel, or the Sea of Yang, the primal reservoir of Yang, which ultimately finances all movement and growth. But this channel also governs the ability to self-determine. The psycho-emotional presentation of your patients can be matched to a classical activation of this channel, clearing impedance in the free flow of yang chi to body, mind, and spirit. I'd like to share with you the marvelous potency of the Do channel in a full-length live treatment video from the seminar I taught last year in Melbourne, Australia. It's at ancecilsturman.com forward slash sinews2024. Click on the jump to free teaching button or see the link on my Instagram page at Ann Cecil Sturman. Thanks, Michael. Back to you. I see this in my work as well, and I've seen it in my own life as well, that there are these parts. I call them troublesome, or my patient calls it a problem. And yet, as we were speaking earlier, there is something about this troublesome thing it's actually trying to be helpful and protective in the best or maybe the only way it knows how. And I would dare say I would label these parts as fiercely loyal, not unlike any kind of shadow material that we may carry from a Jungian perspective, that there is something that is actually enriching, but we but we haven't connected with it in a way that it can be assimilated and digested, but it is loyal. And my sense is because these parts are loyal, giving them that opportunity 
to say no, how often have those parts had an opportunity to actually say no? Yeah. And of course, this takes us back that the art of saying no is something we start to develop fairly slowly as infants. Uh, but the art of becoming enraged, we'd start to develop pretty quickly if there's no food or comfort uh, available. Um, a, a lot of these parts that hold us hostage are very pre-verbal parts. It's, that's why the sort of Harvard model is going to fall down completely because it's based on the idea that we're all rational beings wanting a wise outcome. Actually, we're not rational beings yet. We're enraged beings wanting some kind of compassionate outcome. And um, how to stay present with that, how to bring all those appropriate qualities to it. Uh, and I think Margot is, is wonderful at doing this because th those things you mentioned before, all the other options, the oils, the acupuncture, sometimes that can be such a relief <laughs> that those things are available and that there's someone here who cares about me and is offering these possible ways to, to calm things down, to establish rapport, to allow me to express my needs in some way or to allow these enraged or... Uh, terrified parts to express themselves in some way so that that's that's the work really and uh, another thing that I always start off with is to emphasize this thing about negotiation I don't use the word negotiation but I do say collaboration and one thing Chris Voss says is negotiation is the heart of collaboration so um in in the old model that I was trained in, yes, that people come for shiatsu and they, I'd ask them a few health history questions and lie down. And it would be my job to sort them out with appropriate advice at the end and so on. Um, nowadays, I do my best to make it clear right at the beginning, this is a collaborative process between you and me. I want you to feel completely as if this is your space and, you know, I'll, uh, my job here is is to facilitate some kind of improvement in communication between your everyday thinking mind and whatever's going on in your body mind that that you're not not happy about. And I'll be asking you a few simple questions to help facilitate that. But if the questions don't work, that's fine. Just don't answer them. And and then we you know might go into some kind of simple embodied. Uh, kind of contemplative dialogue process or I'll ask them to bring attention to the body in some mindfulness sort of way. And usually that's where the conversation starts, the conversation between the, the person and their body-mind. And it, as Margot just illustrated, it, start, it very rapidly becomes very often quite fascinating uh, as you begin to explore this inner landscape and these metaphors that emerge. But it is collaborative, and sooner or later you get to the point where some negotiation is required. How would it be if you could just keep breathing and stay present with that feeling of anxiety as it arises in your chest? That's a negotiation, you know, that I'm making with the person and that they're making with their, their own breathing. Does that make sense? Uh, sure. Well, of course it makes sense to me. Michael, does it make sense to you? It does. And again, I am often struck at the power of metaphor to bring forth tremendous amounts of information. 
and at the same time to give some distance from that thing that's being hammered on. The thing that's been hammered on for who knows how long, and nothing's changing. Bringing a, a, uh, a larger view to that, whether it includes kinesthetic experience or, or like Margot, you were describing, there's sound or there's a visual component to it. Now you've got more handles yes. to work with. Yes. And it's a bit safer because we're not talking about, I'm using air quotes here, the problem. We're talking about this other thing. Yes. And so I wouldn't say necessarily that we have leverage now, but but again, maybe we have some handles to work with. Does that make sense? Thought of I saw Archimedes clapping. He thought handles, leverage. And it's not our having leverage over someone else. It's it's our having leverage over what we're experiencing in ourselves that we have. We can grasp it. We can get a handle on it. These are this is one of the beauties of language is it helps us do it helps us grasp our situation so that we can work with it. Okay. I want to I want to dig into this just a little bit because I feel like you just held up a carnival house of mirrors to me. <laughs> All right. So often I think in working with patients, I'm there to to help them shift something. But you were just talking about noticing something in ourselves mm -hmm. using that. Mm -hmm. Tell me more about that. I just want to be clear of, of that we're understanding the same thing. I was speaking of um, patients have of a gratification through our relationship. It is essential for the practitioner also to have a grasp of themselves. And actually, Chris mentions it in his book that if the, if the practitioner isn't able to regulate themselves, negotiation will not work. That is the key. So really, um, I think everything Nick and I are speaking of it has to start with us ourselves first. For one thing, we're modeling it for our patients. For another thing, if 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 we use the metaphor of being a negotiator in a hostage situation, we have to have our own grounding and our own ability to touch into the resources we have inside ourselves so that we can use them as a handle for ourselves. And then again, share that. And that's what makes him such a brilliant negotiator is he is able to do it. He doesn't tell us how to in his book, but Nick and I do. <laughs> we, have some, we have some ways of doing that that have worked for us. And we, we know that for our, our students and our patients, it works for them too. He doesn't talk about the, the skills of embodied presence very much. He does talk about making sure you're using the right tone of voice, which have to be connected with your body to be able to do that. But also, I just wanted to say, Margot, that he does say, make sure you have a good backup team. Make sure there are three or four people at least listening, not just you, as, as the hostage speaks to you on the phone. 
uh, because those three or four people are going to be hearing different things. And I think that's true because I'm with my ears, I'm hearing some things. With my heart, I'm hearing other things. With my gut brain, I'm hearing other things. I really need to be tuned into my body and think of myself as a team. Uh, and be, you know, when I'm doing my trainings with, with students about this, I get them to work at least in threes so that there's a, a client role, a practitioner role, and then there's a third person who's just listening. And noticing how it's resonating for them in that embodied way, which is a kind of a luxury you don't actually get in clinical practice. But boy, do they learn a lot from just being in that listening role. Yeah. I just wanted to add that in there, Margaret. Michael, was that on track with your question? Did I did I get that right or wrong? No, we're getting there. We're getting there. The Can I ask you a question, Michael? Yes, of course. Uh, Because you've mentioned this book and so many times when such enthusiasm, it got us reading it. And I'm just curious how it works for you in your clinical practice. How do you find yourself applying Chris Voss's principles? Okay. So how does it work for me? One of the things that I love about Chris Voss, and, and especially listening to him in interviews and such, is you know he's this kind of New York guy. You know, He's like a wise guy. And he talks about being in these situations where he's dealing with kidnappers who are happy to kill people. That's not a problem for them. And, and so he talks about that you've got to self-regulate yourself, much like you guys speak about with an embodied presence. You got to self-regulate yourself. And he talks about, you got to come across as that late night FM DJ, right? You just, you, you put yourself in that place, you use your voice like that late night FM DJ. And if you can regulate your voice, your voice can down regulate any kind of triggered emotions that you might have simply by using your voice, simply by putting. So for me, if something's happening in the clinic and it feels like, Ooh, this is ramping up and I feel myself ramping up. I know some people take a deep breath or they like put their feet on the ground. I will do what I can to take my voice from being kind of where my Adam's apple is and drop it down to where my sternum is. And it helps me in clinic. It settles me down. My voice changes a bit. I find people tend to respond to that voice that's a little bit deeper, a little bit quieter. There are some pauses in it. And I find that very, very helpful. Yeah. And of course, that, that's taken us right back to the polyvagal theory and to, and to Chinese medicine. The, the heart is connected to the tongue in Chinese medicine. In polyvagal theory, it's this tone, voice tone, which is the first way a mother communicates with her baby, a nonverbal baby. It's the, you know, it's the right side of the brain that develops first in the womb because it's that right-sided, in-the-moment, nonverbal kind of communication that a baby needs when it comes out to get any handle at all, speaking of handles, uh, on what's going on in this weird and wacky world <laughs> where you're not just floating around blissfully in amniotic fluid. Hopefully blissfully. Maybe, you, you know, your mother's uh, having traumas while you're in the womb. So... Yeah, the, that voice tone and, of course, touch is another great way to, to get through when um, these tidal waves of emotion or trauma tend to, you know, threaten to overcome. 
Yeah, and there are other there are other skills of rapport building that can also be useful to help influence that vagus nerve system. Sometimes the prosodic voice that you're speaking of, Michael, doesn't work if somebody's really in a traumatic space. So there are there are uh, many other rapport building skills that we can use if we're aware of them to help in that situation. You give an example of a few? Oh, yeah. Well, you know, rapport is about being we like we like people who seem to be like us. You know, when we can find similarities and we can build a bridge, that's when we feel safer with somebody and we feel in rapport. So just as you did when you were when you were talking about Chris Voss listening to him on you know, his TED talk or on his podcast is New Yorky kind of guy, you know, he's, he's rough and rough and scrappy in some way. That's one way he uh, is to, you can kind of mirror somebody's voice and tempo of how they're speaking, the kind of words they use. So they might not be speaking in the FM DJ nighttime voice. They might be speaking in a really hyper aroused way. And you can match their tempo. That's what, that's just another way to build rapport, to build a bridge. And I uh, just want to give a shout out to anybody who's thinking, wow, this can be so manipulative. Yes, it absolutely can be. So, you know, our intention in coming to this isn't about having an agenda that you want your patient to follow. It's really, well, they're, well, I, I should say and Nick, you can chime in, and Michael, you too, since you work with this, what your agenda is. Mine is definitely that, my perspective is that there are these disenfranchised parts of ourselves, marginalized parts of ourselves that are really calling out for recognition and, yeah, to be honored and noticed and not to be fixed or changed or put aside or um, shut up. And through this process of rapport, it's we're making friends. We're making friends. And that's not a manipulation. It's a it's a reaching out of the hand so so we can connect. And it's clinically approved, I would like to say. <laughs> in the sense that making friends, you know, there's the, the befriending is it's a part of mindfulness-based cognitive therapy, which is research evidence-based process. It, this process of befriending, not just the, the, the patient, but these awesomely uh, dictatorial parts that they may be bringing in with them, and step-by-step um, step finding ways that one can befriend these things in oneself. Absolutely. And, and Chris Voss, talks about how the, instead of going the academic route, they went to the, the psychotherapy route to find the resources, to find the skills that they wanted to use in the field, as he says, uh, and, and did find that those were effective. And reading his book and, and looking at all the amazing quotes that he comes up with, which are exactly like the way I have found you know, effective work happens, I'm really struck by how much they resonate with the kind of Zen principles or Taoist principles. Like, you know, he says, you've got to step out of your ego. Uh, to, you've got to negotiate in your counterpart's world. And he also refers almost directly without using the, the formal title of you know, not knowing, that Taoist principle of not knowing. But he says, 
instead of doing any thinking at all, calm your head, to quiet your head, make your soul and all-encompassing focus the other person and what they have to say. And this is exactly the kind of skill you need to develop if you're using a, an approach like clean language. You just turn the inside of your mind into a recording device and you listen to the words and the tempo and the tone and timbre of those words and just allow them to resonate inside your head and filter down through your body and then you offer them back almost like a tea ceremony. Ah, you just offered me this and I'm offering it back to you. And then the same thing happens to the other person. They hear the words they just said, but mm, they actually sound different. There's more in there than I thought I was saying. And the process begins. It's reciprocal and it's, it's always collaborative and it, every moment contains a little micro-negotiation. There is something powerful about taking the words that somebody is saying, but they're maybe not quite hearing themselves completely and offering it back in a way that they can hear what they're already saying to themselves. That really is like magic. I mean, it, it's, it's, if there's a Jedi trick out there, I, I think that would be one of them. Uh, but it does take what you guys were just talking about, that not us having an agenda for ourselves, but being able to be sort of that clear, reflective mirror, but not the complete mirror. It's like this mirror that can reflect back the particular parts that might have a bit of a charge, or the particular parts that aren't being listened to, or those particular parts that, again, maybe the person themselves is trying to hear, but they've not been able to hear. Yeah, Michael, thank you for saying that. Uh, I love in this book how Chris says, it may look as if there are just two people in the room having a conversation. For him, it's the hostage taker and himself, negotiator. It may look like there's just the patient and the practitioner in the room. But when you look at it, how many voices are in each of our heads? We have the voices of our teachers and our past patients, our experience. We have the voice of Lao Tzu and Chuang Tzu. We have, <laughs> we have the voice of our spouse who we just had a fight with, you know. And then the patient has all these voices in their head, too. So when we offer this reflective listening where we speak back exactly the words that they've given, like Nick said in the tea ceremony. And as you're saying, Michael, they have an opportunity to hear it. And just like the patient and the case that I shared, the response was it needs to go away. And then she gets to reflect on that. Wait a minute, does it need to go away? And realized somewhere inside of her came, no, it doesn't need to go away. Here's what here's what I really need. Uh, yeah, so that listening piece is so important and feeding back so we can hear ourselves. We don't really we don't really see ourselves very well. That's something in NLP you can't or actually uh, my teacher Jeffrey says that you can't change the mind with the mind. There, there's a <laughs> you need some meta something meta to the mind to help it see itself. And this reflection is like that. It's very powerful. 
in recent years, the Sa'am acupuncture style has generated significant interest and a loyal and growing following. In the Sa'am approach, a precise diagnosis leads to a four-needle treatment to address the five element and six chi imbalances in the body. The four needles target the controlling and generating cycles. It's common using this method for the needle sensation to be stronger than in many other styles. Thus, the choice of needle becomes important. The Unico brand of needles lends itself to both strong and gentle techniques. These superior needles are made of uncoated Japanese surgical stainless steel and feature the best guide tube on the market with its unique beveled edge. Additionally, Unico needles have a tensile property that helps with freehanding needles into Jing well points and allows you to more easily feel the arrival of Qi. Blue Poppy is the exclusive importer and distributor of Unico needles. Use the code QI2024 to save 10% off Unico needles at www.bluepoppy.com. You'll be glad you did. So I want to come back to something that Nick had said earlier, that in a hostage negotiation, because there's so much information going back and forth, and because even if you're a skilled hostage negotiator, you're going to miss a lot because you're, you're like embedded in that system. You're enmeshed in what's going on. And so they will often have other negotiators listening for other information that the main negotiator may have missed. And Nick, you brought up that for us in our clinical settings, you know, we have our rationality, we have our feelings, we have our heart, you know, we have like how we're hearing things, that there's other parts of us that in a sense are also listening. And it seems to me that we can bring not just our intellect to this, but we can bring our heart to it. We can bring our emotions. Sometimes we just bring our emptiness. And it has something that it has heard that the rest of us hasn't heard. Absolutely. Is that a question? Well, it's a comment. I want to see, does this make sense to you? Or am I just off on a tangent? It's always moving to remember, to realize how much of you there is outside your head. Uh, as you're talking about hands and gut and so on. Sorry, heart, you said, and gut. I was really remembering. Heart, yes. Although you could put your hands on someone, and that can also give you information. That's also yeah. in our ballywhack. Absolutely. I was remembering that. Because my hands know stuff that my head will never know. And I think Carl Jung has a quote to that effect. You can often solve problems with the hands that the intellect has no idea how to resolve. And it reminds me, that, again, reading all of the things he suggests, that of the skills of not just of Zen, but of improv, which is a hugely popular thing these days, it's even in you know business work. The, the emptiness. In improv, you come onto the stage with nothing. That's the whole point. If you come on with a script, you're already trying to shine as an actor, like the way we maybe try to shine as a practitioner. You come on with nothing except your body, your embodied self, and this deeply trained willingness to be totally present with the other person on the stage. 
other people on the stage and to see what emerges from that. And one thing Chris Voss says is a, a, a well-trained negotiator is not just ready for surprises, but waiting and prepared for those surprises because they know that those surprises contain the essence of the encounter and the real, the real juicy stuff. And so being ready to be surprised, being empty, listening with your whole body, being prepared to stay in that stage of not knowing, not knowing. And, and for me, when I think of improv and Zen, the non-doing aspect of Zen, what, what, how do you pronounce it in Chinese, Wu Wei, is the playfulness of improv. It's like, we're not doing, we're playing. And even in these very, another moving part of the book is where he's talking about these very fraught situations, but moments of almost playfulness, moments of genuine rapport, moments where a person, a hostage taker is revealing things about themselves. Um, and just as you know, Oprah Winfrey does, getting people to to talk about their deeper needs and injuries and emotional wounds that have got them into this situation in the first place, all of that stuff. So, uh, yeah, I just think improv is another great thing to keep in mind as a model for how to stay present in um, testing times. Yes, listening. Listen, it's like whole body whole body and maybe auric listening. I don't even know what it is, what, what other body is listening. But there is this sense um, when working with clean language with patients, or I'm sure within any, whatever context you're working with it and language rapport, that you're not just listening with your ears, you're listening with everything. We all know that feeling. We know that feeling when we're with someone and they're something has deeply resonated with them and it has shifted their consciousness. It's shifted their frame. You can see it and you, you can see it. Their, their face changes, their voice changes. They might slow down and say the next few words really slowly, like, aha, like they're savoring it. Like, whoa, this is something special. So you might see it with your eyes. You'll hear a change in the tone of voice you also feel something in your body, like you know, oh, something shifted. And learn from Nick, that's the physiology is shifting and we're looking for those changes. And then we know something has emerged for that person that's really critical and important. Um, and to me, cultivating that skill of listening, not just with my ears, but my eyes, my sense of smell, maybe even the taste in my mouth, the feeling in my body, what's happening in the space between us. All of that we can cultivate. Anyone can cultivate that. And so, you know, why I've I find mindfulness practice and my Taoian movement and yoga and working with clean language as I do those practices has really helped me emerge into my senses. Um, Nick, do you have anything you want to say about that? Or Michael? I just love that phrase. I just love that phrase. Emerge into my senses. Now you're doing just what Chris Voss does. You're repeating the last few words that Margot just said. <laughs> and savoring them. That's the point. Not just manipulatively repeating them back, but just savoring them for what they mean to you. I think that's the first step in creating rapport through uh, a process like clean languages. 
you're appreciating what the person just said, rolling it around in your mouth, getting a sense of it, and then offering it back. Yeah. It really is. It's, it's such a gift to receive. It is like a tea ceremony. It's an honor and a privilege to witness and um, not even witness it. I love um, one of my, my teachers, Alice Wielden, who you had on your show, um, she speaks of it. It's not so much witnessing. It's actually like if you've ever ridden on a surfboard, which I love, <laughs> it feels so good. You feel like you're not just watching the wave. You're actually experiencing the feeling of the wave as it, as it moves through you, in you. And that's what it's like being with people. It is such an honor to work in this way with, with people. I want to come back to something you said a little bit earlier, because I think it bears repeating, that all the skills we've been talking about, the perspectives that come from this book, and even the perspectives in, in, in our work trying to help people, they can be seen and they could be used as manipulation. These are very, very powerful aspects of how human beings communicate and are with each other. And so if your intent is to sell something to somebody or sign them up for a package of 25 treatments or sell them a bunch of herbs or, I mean, or sell them a car, I mean, whatever it is, these skills can take you a long way in manipulating other people. All right. Now, Many of us have built in kinds of senses of, oh, this is off. But again, these skills are very powerful and they generally run underneath conscious awareness. We were just talking about how most of us are not rational creatures in the first place. So I, I just want to say that that's there. And these are also incredibly powerful tools when used with heart and caring and looking to help somebody out of a jam. When I think about Chris Foss talking about the experiences that he's had working with terrorists and kidnappers and bank robbers and stuff, I don't get the feeling that he's trying to get that bad guy out of malice. He's trying to help the people that are trapped in a bad situation, and that bad situation includes the bad guy. And remember, he started his training doing the helpline for people, suicidal people, that when he went to the woman in charge of FBI negotiation, the negotiation team asking if he could be on it, she said, only if you go and work voluntarily on this helpline for people in deep trouble. And he did. And he learned so much about himself there and, and how he wanted to bring his own agendas in and shine and you know be seen to be a great helper on the helpline. And that's... So I think with the, the point about clean language, that's why it's called clean language. It's because it, the questions are so simple. They're absolutely designed to keep our own agendas out of the client space and the patient space. And so it isn't that manipulative. But if there's one more point I'd like to make there, slightly reframing, the word manipulation comes from the word for hands, um, Latin for hands. And I... I do manipulate <laughs> in some ways as I work with my hands in a in a benign way, I hope. 
Um, but I, I think that comes back to that good old Zen principle, the difference between the beginner's mind and the expert mind. It's not that the beginner's mind is, is the be-all and end-all. We do need the expert mind as well. The expert needs to be able to do some benign manipulation, uh, sometimes quite seriously, like working with somebody who's having a panic attack right there in the session because they bumped into a metaphor that seems so terrifying that they don't want to go there. And, you know, sometimes I just have to be the expert and say, take a deep breath. I want you to stand up. I want you to move around. You know, that's expert mind stuff and it's manipulative, but it's in a, in a good sense. So always getting that balance. And, and as, as Margot was saying, that Ian McGrill, Kristen, his brilliant work on the difference between the right and left hemispheres, it's about getting the balance between the left hemisphere that wants to get results, that wants to shine, as a, you know, so it's, it's expertise and knows stuff, and the right hemisphere that's right there in the moment, totally attuned to what's actually happening, which is the essence of Zen, as far as I'm concerned. I think we're back to this embodied presence mm -hmm. that Margot often talks yeah. so much about. Yeah, the body tends to tell the truth. Body tends to tell the truth. May I make a, another comment about assumptions and biases? That, because that's another thing that Chris Foss brings up. I think that's a really important point. Having been a science researcher before I became an acupuncturist, one thing that I got very interested in when I was in graduate school was how to design a study that was free of bias and influence. So, you know, I got into quantum physics and here I am being an ecologist, doing field work, observing. I was observing birds. That might not sound very scientific to some people, but <laughs> I was hired by the National Science Foundation to do it. How, how can I do that really fresh, fresh without influencing the system that I'm looking at? And when I was at Rutgers, I came across, I was reading through articles. What did former researchers find about being in the field? And was there any information? Were there any studies on how a field researcher influences the system they're looking at? And by golly, I found two separate articles that blew my mind. And basically, these were researchers, you know, respected researchers in the field saying, just your presence creates a ripple in what's happening. You cannot see a system without your biases. It's not possible. And these two studies were showing how the birds responded differently to having a, a person in their environment. We think we're in a blind and they can't see us, but they're not stupid. <laughs> we're there. And so many of my studies, my, my research, we always had a camera watching them, and then we had the researcher come in, and then we observed how they responded to those two different things. So as Chinese medicine practitioners, we bring a lot of bias into our practice, a lot of assumptions. We have our own body of gorgeous metaphors, but even just sharing the metaphors of Chinese medicine is influencing our patients because they might have different metaphors. We might talk about wind and fire and heat and cold and though those really resonate for people, because we all know what that feels like, they might have a different, they might have a different metaphor. And that's this is what I love about this practice of clean language is we get to hear what their metaphors are, and they get to hear them too. 
and then they they can change from that. Yes, and they get to hear them too. They get to hear them too. The um, the thing about being in a field and observing a field without influencing the field. I mean, yes, that very quickly gets into quantum physics and that that whole sense that it is impossible to observe anything mm-hmm. without changing what's being observed is is exactly. such a hall of mirrors idea. And at the same time, we can take that, like you were just talking about, we can be aware of our awareness. And we can use language in a way so that we we can watch our own mind. And Carlo Rovelli, I think his name is, the, the, the guy who's the best explainer of quantum physics at the moment in terms of putting it into popular language, has recently come out with a new book in which he specifically goes back to Buddhist principles and says this idea that has got so embedded in our minds that the observer changes things is maybe better thought of as simply um, an acknowledgement of interbeing, of everything related to everything else. And that has to be a bottom line principle in the kind of work we're talking about here, I think. Everything's related to everything else. And that's gorgeous. And what a powerful, the presence is powerful. It's powerful medicine. So we began today with negotiation, thinking about negotiation, talking about it. Often when people think negotiation, they're thinking two sides and there's kind of a battle going on. Someone's going to win, someone's going to lose. And after this delightful winding conversation, I think we're coming around to that there is this field of interconnection and it's how we pay attention to that interconnection. The parts of us that we bring forth, or maybe even hold to the side so that our patients can bring these other parts of themselves forth, because it seems to me that's where the gold really is in the healing encounter. Does that make sense? Well, uh, Chris Voss, um, just to one more quote, it talks about, he said, there's a kind of involuntary neurological telepathy. Each and every one of us in every given moment is signaling to the world around us whether we're ready to play or fight or laugh or cry. This involuntary neurological, yeah, he calls it telepathy, but actually we're, you know, there are plenty of ways you can track how we're communicating these things to each other. It's not just through the, the chi or the energy, as some people like to say. But that's one way of thinking about it. And an, another thing he says is that in any negotiation, human connection is the first goal. So it's like, yes, getting the right kind of human connection is the goal. There is always human connection there, whether it's whatever we're involuntarily signaling and connecting. Getting the right kind of connection is the goal. And um, and that human connection in which we're present, not just in our heads or with our language, but with our bodies and how they're communicating with each other. That's that's really important stuff. I did find... Chris Voss's book to be a beautiful melding of intensely manipulative and also honoring work. So I'm just thinking if anybody picks this up, I wouldn't want them to think this is my Bible of how I want to work with people because 
there he does he's got um he he is working from a metaphor of something to be fought or subdued or shifted he's invested in that and here so uh you know just to your point michael of speaking of you know you brought up um manipulation i just want to say that out loud for folks that this um it's a brilliant has brilliant insight into the art of negotiation which we do in clinic the way he goes about it his intention is different from ours (laughs) so maybe that's explicit already and maybe not well it's worth keeping in mind I would also like to suggest that, like any powerful tool, your intention behind the wielding of that tool is what makes it a surgical scalpel or a murder weapon. And there's also a, uh, a delightful story in the book. I think it's one of his students who managed to get an upgrade on an airline at a time when there was all these snowstorms and big events. I mean, there were like no seats to be had. People were waiting for like two days to get on a damn airplane. And one of his students managed to get himself a first-class upgrade on the next flight out. And using very simple skills of reflection and and some of the, uh, the, the no- empathy, the the get you know the, the getting people to say no all these things and the thing that i found so fascinating about it not only did that person get that airline out in a good seat but the person who was working the counter had a better day because of interacting with that person that person was seen that person was appreciated that overworked being yelled at by hundreds of people airline employee came away with a moment of my day's okay and there are decent people in this world. So when we start looking into communication and getting what we want and helping other people get what they want, it I don't think it's so cut and dry as to is this manipulative or is this just for me? Because sometimes it's, it really is for us. And I think especially in our clinical encounters, it is for us. It's important to remember. I think that's really important to remember because the tools we have are so powerful and can be so manipulative in themselves. And we can get very attached to that. Uh, He does on page 54 quote, Sun Tzu, as everyone does, the, the aim is to subdue the enemy without fighting. And beyond that, I guess the aim is to get out of that frame of mind of thinking, this is an enemy. This is something I can, I can befriend. And when we do, I think the only thing that he doesn't say in his book is how to negotiate with someone who's already read his book. Uh, if there are two people using Chris Voss techniques with each other, then then what happens? And I just kind of have this image in my mind of at some point they suddenly realize, hey, you're doing the same thing as I'm doing. And they, there's a twinkle in both eyes and they come back to remembering, this is all about human connection. Let's get this negotiation rolling. And um, and we can do it in a, in a friendly way. Yeah, but never split the difference. <laughs> Well, my friends, it's always a delight 
to hang out with the two of you. Very much so. Thanks, Michael. Thank you, Michael. We feel the same way. Absolutely. All right. Till next time, then. I read Never Split the Difference a few years ago, and it's a great book for learning to, as author Chris Voss says, letting others have your way. I so appreciated this conversation with Nick and Margot exploring how these negotiation techniques can also help us to help our patients. It occurred to me back when I was reading the book and starting to attend to some of the nuances and use of language and empathy that my patients were often negotiating against themselves, that they would play their weak cards thinking that they were a better person for doing so, or they would ignore inner resources and strengths as they had a low opinion of that part of themselves. With our medicine, we help the body and mind to function in a more integrated state of harmony and coherence. Needles, of course, can help with this, and the skillful use of language and attention can also assist our patients in being more connected to their essence and Zheng Qi. And, of course, in the process of running your business, being able to negotiate in a respectful and effective way, well, that's always helpful. Nick's book, Words That Touch, and Margot's new upcoming book on language and movement are both ways to further explore the use of language in the therapeutic setting. Details and links to those are over on the show notes page. Thanks as always for listening. If you liked this conversation, if you learned something new or found a moment of inspired insight, share the episode with your friends. If you want to support Geological, there's just one way to do that. It's by going to the website and becoming a member or leaving a one-time contribution today. Well, folks, That's it for today. Join us again next Tuesday for another conversation that connects up the voices of our community.